Well, good morning, everyone. Would you uh, pray with me as we get started here today? Lord, we're so thankful for the gift of your word, which brings life. Lord, your word, which guides and leads, uh, gives us wisdom and understanding, helps us to understand you and your plans for us. And this morning, as we turn to your word, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds and Lord, reveal yourself today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 21. That's where we'll be uh, spending our time this morning. Let me start by saying, when I left for college, I was a hopelessly naive teenager. I mean, my own family had uh, its own share of problems, for sure, but I was really unprepared for the kind of mess that I was going to encounter when I got to college, which included all kinds of different things. But one thing that stuck out to me in particular was the number of guys on my floor who came from families where the parents were divorced. Now, Maybe you're thinking, well, that there's divorces everywhere. But for me, as a kid, I don't know, I was probably just completely oblivious to this growing up. But that was sort of the, the tunnel vision that I had in my life. And yet here I was, suddenly in college, surrounded by all these guys on my floor whose parents were divorced. It was like it was everywhere. And of course, then divorce was just the tip of the iceberg for all kinds of other mess that came along with that, all kinds of crazy stories. And I could just see all this pain and heartache and sorrow and struggle behind all of that. You know, families are messy by definition, right? Uh, even the best, healthiest, happiest family has its share of drama and dysfunction. It's inevitable, right? You just cram a bunch of sinful people together and sooner or later the sparks are going to start flying. But while the Bible is painfully open from page one just about on the dysfunction of just about every family, there's this thread of hope that runs through all the stories from beginning to end. A thread that says, sin will not have the last word. A thread that offers grace for failing families, grace and hope for hurting homes. Even in the obscure and sometimes strange and dissonant laws of Deuteronomy. And so today we're going to dive into chapter 21 and we're going to look at laws relating to uh, captives taken in war and, and inheritance rights for children and the need for capital punishment even in the case of rebellious children. And through all of that we're going to see this beautiful thread of God's grace for failing families. And I hope that in the process you too will begin to find strength for the struggles that you're facing in your families as well this morning. So, turn with me, like I said, to uh, chapter 21, and we're going to be starting in verse 10. And the first principle I want you to see uh, this morning is this, dignity for the defeated. 
Now, the context for our passage today is war. War, that's what Moses is talking about. Now, according to Deuteronomy 20, the previous chapter, the Israelites were always supposed to start by offering peace to their enemies, right? In this way, hopefully, they could avoid all fighting. Only if the city refused to respond peacefully were the Israelites then meant to attack, and only then, if they defeated the city, only then to, to kill the men, but to leave the women and children on, unharmed. Now, I know this still sounds barbaric to us, right? But in a time when war was common, and there were very few limits placed on violent activity, such rules of engagement were, were intended to restrain unnecessary or excessive violence in these cases. Now, since all enemy men would have been killed in such a situation, the only question that would then come up is, well, what do we do with all these women? So Moses speaks to that issue here. And, and again, the, in comparison to the other nations around them, what we read in this text is surprisingly generous. So look with me, starting in verse 10. When you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God gives them into your hand, and you take them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you desire to take her to be your wife, and you bring her home to your house. She shall shave her head and pare her nails, and she shall take off all the clothes in which she was captured, and shall remain in your house and lament her father and her mother a full month. And after that you may go into her and be her, be her husband, and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants, but you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave, since you have humiliated her. So, first, the Israelite soldiers were not allowed to treat the women as objects to be used and discarded at will. However beautiful or attractive a woman might be, nothing could happen between them unless the man was willing to take the step of making her his wife. So this step would be normal and expected in the case of a, of a fellow Israelite, right? But it's surprising in the case of an enemy captive, a prisoner who would presumably have no rights, no privileges, certainly no expectations for being treated fairly. But secondly, this, this process was not brief or, or cursory, right? She had to be brought back to his house. She's given time and space to grieve and mourn. When the text talks about shaving her head and paring her nails, that's a, 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 a ritual act of cleansing and mourning. And the man, meanwhile, was required to wait patiently throughout this time. He couldn't act impulsively. Any strong emotions he might have experienced during the heat of battle would have, would have time then to wear off. The woman was included in his household, made a part of his community, given space to consider and to reflect on everything that had happened. Now, again, this is still a forced marriage we're talking about, right? This woman has no say in any of this. This is not her choice. She's not given other options. So I don't want to pretend like this is all suddenly okay. I mean, it's barely one step above kidnapping, right? It's not something we're meant to emulate or encourage or condone. 
But we're not supposed to be comparing their situation to ours. Their context was completely different. So although we may wish for the text to completely outlaw such behavior, the law here is merely attempting to regulate existing practices. It's a reminder of the continuing sin present among the people and therefore implicitly points forward to the need for a savior to come who would radically reshape hearts and minds towards a completely different ethic. But that's getting ahead in the text here. So a third point here to make is regards verse 14. Because this is really amazing. As as I already read, he said, if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants, but you shall not sell her for money, and you shall treat her as a shall not treat her as a slave, since you have humiliated her. Remember, this woman is not an Israelite. She's an enemy captured in war, not part of ethnic Israel, certainly not a worshiper of Yahweh. And yet God communicates to his people that once she's been taken in marriage. She is then to be treated with all the same kind of dignity and and value and worth and respect as any other native Israelite woman. So if the man ends up divorcing her for some reason, she's not to be sold off like she's just property or treated as if she's a slave. Instead, she's given freedom to go where she chooses. You take all these things together, and this is a lot of hoops that the Israelite man has to jump through, right? A more normal response among other nations would have been to take and use defeated enemies without any second thoughts whatsoever. But the alternative that Moses paints here reflects an attitude of of restraint and respect God's people are, not, are to treat the defeated with dignity and with honor as a people who had themselves experienced the pain and the humiliation of hundreds of years of slavery and abuse in Egypt. They were not then to, to lord it over others or gloat in their sudden success or abuse their power to make life miserable and humiliating for others. Jesus, of course, becomes the ultimate embodiment of this principle, right? God's chosen servant entered Jerusalem, not as a conquering king, but humble on a donkey, setting aside all his rights and privileges to serve rather than to be served. He called people to come and learn from him because he was gentle and lowly in heart. He sat and ate with sinners and tax collectors. He healed the broken, restored the outcasts, embraced the lost, brought new life to the dead, freed the oppressed, gave hope to all. He was the the mighty Messiah that nobody expected because he exercised restraint and he extended grace and mercy and forgiveness. So back in our passage, the forced marriage resulting from a a painful war would have been incredibly difficult for the women involved. No doubt about it. But the law here pointed God's people towards a posture uh, of restraint and respect, affirming the image of God in everyone, 
And if the people of God could extend dignity to their defeated enemies and find ways to incorporate them into the intimacy of a family unit, then surely we should be able to do that much today as followers of Jesus, with uh, redeemed by Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, and especially in our own marriages, however broken and messy, even in the middle of the most trying and difficult situations, and even in the middle of arguments and disagreements, even after years of dysfunction and difficulty, as long as you still have breath in your lungs and the Holy Spirit of God himself living in your heart, there is hope for your marriage. And the first little tiny baby step towards that healing, even in the absence of love and affection and joy and peace, may just be that simple act of treating each other with dignity and respect rather than as enemies and opponents fighting, jockeying for power and position. If they could do it here in the midst of war with enemies of the people of God, surely we should be able to do that in our marriages today. Well, the second principle I want you to see from the text today is this. There's fair treatment for the least favored. Now, unless you're a lawyer, rules and regulations about inheritance rights are probably not at the top of your list of topics to talk about on a Sunday morning. Like, woohoo, we get to talk about law today. Great. Uh, although the topic actually has more relevance than you may think. Perhaps you remember the hoopla from... Uh, Earlier this year in January when uh, uh, England's Prince Harry released his autobiography, maybe you saw it's called Spare. He's not talking about bowling here. He's talking about the tradition among royalty and the elite and the landed gentry and lords and all of this uh, of having an heir and a spare, right? I mean, one son who will inherit everything, and then we better crank out another one just in case, right? That's the spare, like, like the extra, just in case something happens to the first. So for the British royal family, William will be the heir to the throne uh, after King Charles dies. But Harry, well, he's the spare. And his book airs all his grievances associated with being stuck in that role. Now, The situations are clearly different, but the tension expressed in that fraught relationship between William and Harry reflects some of the same challenges that Moses addresses right here in Deuteronomy. Cultures may change, but families never stop being the source of endless drama, right? I'm guessing everyone in here has a story or two that they could share about angry family feuds or protracted legal battles over wills or trusts or or bitter siblings scrambling for the love and attention of their parents. Every single family. Everyone. The situations may be different, but at heart, this is the kind of mess Moses is speaking to in the next section of our text. So look at verse 15. 
Moses says, if a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children, and if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved <coughs> of the loved as a firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the firstfruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. Obviously, talking about polygamy here, completely different from our situations today. But the main point is that in such a situation, fathers are not to play favorites. The law says that the firstborn son, regardless of which wife they came from, is to uh, receive a double portion of the inheritance, as was normal custom at the time, without exception. Well, uh, this hypothetical situation, it, it, it's sort of reminiscent of, of Jacob and his wives, right? Remember Rachel, he loved dearly. Leah, not so much. And it's human nature. You want to bless the people you love more than the people that you don't. Except playing family favorites will always lead to mess, as it does with Joseph and all his brothers. In fact, if you want a great argument against polygamy, Jacob's family mess has to be one of the greatest examples, right? But the point is simply this. Family drama is intense enough without all the additional trauma and tension that comes from playing favorites when it comes to inheritances. I know you, you may be thinking, if you're an astute Bible scholar, well, but, 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 but how do we make sense then of God's choice of Isaac over Ishmael, or, or Jacob over Esau, or Judah over all his brothers, or David over all his brothers? Well, in none of these cases can God be accused of playing favorites, right? He is free to choose whom he will choose to accomplish his his purposes. And he does so in these circumstances without any reference to anything uh, intrinsically good or better in any of these uh, sons than the others. His choices were made in order to advance his kingdom plan. And in none of these situations does God suggest that this will be the norm. In fact, it's his very choice of Jacob over Esau that makes it so shocking and unexpected, breaking with the norms and customs of the day. But those unexpected choices in turn set the context for the surprising nature of God's inclusion of the Gentiles in the kingdom of God, a turnaround that the Apostle Paul goes to great lengths to explain in Romans 9 through 11. Because the inheritance that we have received in Christ is a gift. It's not something that we've earned, right? It's not something we deserve. We've been grafted in after the fact. That's the astonishing nature of election. It's categorically not our birthright. Remember, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, at one time we were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. 
That's our true state apart from Christ. But now, by God's grace, in Christ, our birth order becomes irrelevant. Our ethnic identity, it fades into the background. Family remains important, but it's no longer determinative for our identity, which is in Christ and Christ alone. And it's that fact which gives me great encouragement as I face into the mess of family tension and, and, and drama. I think about all the, the, the people who, who feel like they are nothing more than the spare in their family. Looked over, lost in the shuffle, ignored, passed over by parents who are more interested in, in something or someone else. Those who feel like they aren't as smart or capable or confident or successful or as their siblings. Those who feel like they they don't get treated fairly or even worse, that they get actively treated poorly. Because in Christ, we now know that all these differences have been erased. As Paul says in Galatians, In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There's uh, no male nor female. And and I would add, there's no heirs, no spares, no least favored, no more favored. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. And you are all equally together heirs according to promise and this is true whether you experience that that literal blessing in your family or not you are an heir to the kingdom your inheritance is secure now in christ no one can take that away from you and we should treat each other as co-heirs in christ as a result Now, the third uh, principle found in the text today is this. There are real consequences for rebellion. So kids, if you've been dozing off, no judgment here, but if you've been dozing off here uh, or getting lost, I need you to to wake up and pay attention. Because this next section of scripture is, um, well, you'll see for yourself, it's shocking. It is surprising, and if you're a kid, it may be a little scary. And confusing. And if you've ever disobeyed your parents, you will want to listen up. Look with me at verse uh, 18. If a man, <coughs> see if we get this, okay. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, Then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of this city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones." So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Crazy, right? So many questions like, 
does this text say what I think it says? I mean, how could God allow or condone or, or, or support such extreme behavior? And did people even really do this? Did this happen? And how could this possibly in any way apply to anything in our lives today? Right? Well, first, obviously, this is not a command that can or should be applied directly in our context today. However difficult or frustrating or rebellious your child may be. In fact, there is no record in the Bible of anyone ever being punished like this. There's no record, really. It's extremely unlikely anyone outside the Bible did either. Uh, I found this when researching uh, for this sermon. Uh, Jewish oral tradition produced so many qualifications to this text as to make it almost unenforceable. So this is uh, from Jewish professor uh, Jeffrey uh, Tige, who quotes uh, this oral tradition as follows. It says, The law applies for only the three months after a son turns 13, and only if he's ravenously eaten semi-cooked meat and drunk partially mixed wine in the company of a group that does not include one decent person and not on a religious occasion, paying for the food with money misappropriated from his father, and only if both parents are living in a not deaf, mute, blind, lame, or maimed in the hand, and only if both agree to prosecute him. Highly unlikely anyone was going to meet all these requirements, right? This is not the Word of God. That's not the Bible. That's Jewish oral tradition that developed around this passage of Scripture. But it reflects the fact that this has always been a deeply concerning and troubling passage of Scripture for God's people. And it's highly doubtful that such an extreme punishment was ever carried out as stated. So again, kids, I hope you're paying attention to you. How many of you got in trouble for something in the last week or maybe the last day or this morning, last few hours, right? Uh, didn't make your bed, didn't put your clothes away, disrespectful to your parents, I have no idea, fight with your brother or sister. Don't panic, okay? <laughs> This passage of Scripture is not talking about all these little ways in which we can be uh, disobedient or, or get into little fights, right? Not these little things. So you can breathe a sigh of relief. But it's also not addressing little children, right? The, the Jewish oral tradition said this accountability age of around 13, it was possibly even older than that. Right? The son in mind here is old enough to be considered fully grown, fully responsible, old enough to be capable of egregious, persistent, ongoing, willful sin. More than old enough, in fact, to be labeled a glutton and a drunkard. So although technically he's still living at home, right? He's nevertheless more than old enough to be drinking to the point of being drunk and generally indulging himself in all kinds of vices. The son in this passage, he's not just like a difficult kid or, or challenging or frustrating. He is completely unrepentant to the point of being a threat to the, the, the health and safety of his own family and the community then as a whole. Which brings me to the next point in the text, which says the parents 
aren't even the ones doing the disciplining in this process. The text doesn't say, and the parents should go out and stone their kids. The text says the parents are to take their child to the elders of the cities. And, and not just like an angry dad is, I've had it with this kid, I'm taking him over here, but both parents. And in a patriarchal society, the mother here had to be fully on board as well with the severity of the situation and be in full support of what her husband, the father, the head of the family, wanted to do. Setting this bar really high. And in this way, we can begin to see some contemporary application begin to creep through in the text. Because I know of many parents who've had such severe problems with their teenage children. They have had to eventually, reluctantly, turn them over to the police or the other civil authorities so they can face the appropriate punishment, whether that's for drug or alcohol-related problems or petty theft or vandalism or whatever it is. Not because they don't love their children, but precisely, precisely because they do. Right? They were hoping and praying that the more severe accountability of the police and the courts and the judicial system may be enough to scare their child back to their senses, to change, to repent, to turn back, to be restored and healed. So I think at least one application from uh, this passage is about setting strong boundaries to guard and protect the family and also the broader community against the destructive forces and behaviors of someone drowning in sin. Now, of course, in every family, there's place for grace and forgiveness. We're not any of us perfect. And we'll often make mistakes and hurt each other and let each other down. But... When occasional sin becomes extreme, ongoing, persistent, over a long period of time, when a rebellious child becomes so deeply entrenched in their sin that they refuse to listen to their parents and show absolutely no interest in changing course, then something has to be done. And I've talked with parents, like I said, who've been forced to live this, refusing to enable persistent, ongoing sin, no longer covering up for their young adult children, no longer stepping in so their children can avoid the consequences of their actions. Parents who've had to make the difficult choice to cut off financial support completely or change the locks on the front door or force their children into rehab programs. It's extremely painful. No parent wants to go through any of this. But they've been forced to take these drastic measures in order to protect their own family from the destructive forces of sin. And always, though, with the hope that God will work through such drastic measures to bring about repentance. In fact, Putting the fear of God, literally, into young people was almost certainly the primary intention of this law as a way to teach and to train people about the danger of unchecked sin, which, like a forest fire, must be extinguished 
before it destroys the entire community. Now as we wrap this up, um, I have to make one minor correction. Because I said earlier, there's no example in the Bible of a rebellious son being punished like this. But that is only partially true. Because there is one son who is persistently stubborn and rebellious, who refuses to listen to guidance, who, though disciplined repeatedly, will not listen, will not repent, repeatedly returning to a lifestyle of sin and idolatry. A son who is, as a result, cast out of his house, dragged away in disgrace, and sent into exile. And that son, of course, is the nation of Israel. And as a result, God had every right to utterly destroy them. That's why we read Hosea 11 at the beginning of this this sermon. Or, Or we could read Isaiah 1. God's beloved son, whom he cared so deeply and tenderly for. And yet who repeatedly rejected his loving father. But God doesn't wipe them out. Instead, he sent his beloved son Israel into exile, cast out of the land of promise, stripped of their inheritance. Gone, but not forgotten. Disciplined for a season, but sustained by the gracious promises of God. But it's not just Israel, right? We are all trapped in that same sinking boat, born into sin living lives of stubborn rebellion, hardened by pride, dead in our sins, deserving of death. God's precious sons and daughters, created in his image and yet twisted by sin. And the punishment for that persistent rebellion is clearly death, as we read right here. But the most amazing news is this, that instead of pouring out that wrath on us, God took his own son, his own firstborn son, completely innocent, not rebellious, not stubborn, but obedient and faithful. And this son, this son, it's astonishing, he, he willingly stepped forward to take, to take our place on the cross. He wasn't dragged up there against his will. He went willingly in obedience to his father's plans and purposes. And he did that for you and for me. As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. One son given up for the sake of another. The righteous for the rebellious. And therein lies the hope for every single family. Whatever mess you may find yourself in, there is no sin too great, no problem too severe that God cannot speak into it and bring healing and restoration through his Son, Jesus Christ, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
but that begins with confession and repentance and hearts that cry out to God for help because we cannot do this by ourselves. We are just too lost, too broken. We need His help. And so as we close today, let me pray for all of us as we seek to live this way for God. Lord, you say in your word that everyone who thirsts should come to the waters. Those who have no money to come and buy and eat, to come to buy wine and milk without money and without price. And, and we come so thirsty, parched, dry, weary, desperate for that living water, that new life. Lord, for your Spirit to empower us. Lord, to bring new hope into marriages that have shriveled up over time through lack of care and attention. Lord, new hope into families where children feel overlooked, forgotten, passed over, ignored. Lord, new hope into families where rebellion and sin has caused so much destruction and pain that there seems no way out. Lord, dry, parched, barren land that cries out for your living water to spring up, to bring new life, to quench our thirst. Lord, we need that. We pray for that. We yearn for it. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.